Chris Horton is an Irish illustrator and designer now living in London. He has a long-standing interest in fair trade, which drew him to working with various non-profit organisations. For his work with the ethical clothing company People Tree, he was listed in Time magazine's Design 100. In 2010, Chris moved to Nepal for eight months to work with local craftspeople, designing and making rugs. This led to the setting up of Made by Node with a Nepalese friend. The rugs garnered interest from the Design Museum in London, who commissioned designs and mounted an exhibition of Chris's work. His first children's book, A Little Bit Lost, was published in 2010. It was translated into 20 languages and won the Dutch Picture Book of the Year. Further books include Oh No, George, Shh, We Have a Plan, Good Night, Everyone, and Don't Worry, Little Crab. He's also produced an app, Hat Monkey. Sticking with the theme of monkeys, Chris's latest book, Maybe, is the story of three little monkeys who find it hard to resist their parents' warning not to go down to the mango tree. Chris has a unique style, which is instantly recognisable, and today he's going to give us some insight into what he considers important when making a picture book for young children. Welcome into the Reading Corner, Chris. Thank you so much. Great to see you. So we're going to start with a discussion about that book um, and make some connections with other things that Chris has written um, and maybe also some points of difference between the books as well. But I wonder to kick us off, Chris, would you just read this delightful story for me? Because I want to be five years old again and I just want to hear you read to me. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, I can do that. Yeah, it, it, it takes me two years to write these books and then you can read them in about two minutes. So maybe. Okay, monkeys, I'm off. Now remember, whatever you do, do not go down to the mango tree. There are tigers down there. It's a pity we can't go down to the mango tree. Yeah, I love mangoes. That is a pity. Hmm. Maybe, maybe we could just look at the mangoes. That would be okay, right? Any tigers here? No. Any tigers there? No. No tigers anywhere. It's safe. Down, down, down to the trees below. And look, so many mangoes. Oh, there's one within reach just over there. Hmm, maybe, maybe we could just get that little one. We'd keep a close lookout. That'll be okay, right? Any tigers here? No. Any tigers there? No. No tigers anywhere. It's safe. Quick as a flash, down, grab the mango, climb back up. Hmm, mango, so sweet. So juicy. I wish we had another one, though. Hmm. Maybe. Maybe we could just go down there anyway. If there were tigers around, we'd have seen them by now. Right? Down, down, down. All the way down to the ground. No tigers here. No tigers there. No tigers anywhere. And look. All the mangoes. 
Mmm, so tasty. So delicious. Wait, did I hear something? Tigers! Run! Quick, quick, quick. They're right behind us. Jump! Quick, quick, quick. They're catching up. Climb! Quick, quick, quick. They're going to get us. Oh, it's lucky you're all the way up here. Did you see? There are tigers everywhere down there. Yes, it is lucky. It is lucky, isn't it? Well, we'll have to stay up here now. We can't go anywhere. Not even to the bananas. There are bananas? I love bananas. Hmm. Maybe... What's it really interesting, obviously, for listeners, they will only have one half of the story because we haven't seen the pictures. We haven't seen the fact that when they're climbing, for instance, you turn the page and you climb up the page uh, with the monkeys. But one of the things that will have come across really well in listening to you read is just how performative it is, like inviting a co-collaboration with the reader. Is that how you see it well that was something that i came to when i was making the second book oh no george and i was working with david lloyd in there who who is a performer uh worked as a clown for years and he would take up the draft of the book and then he was kind of using it almost as a sort of a script and how can i be funny with this sort of stage directions (laughs) And it was such a pleasure to watch. And it just clicked then that they are kind of almost stage directions to whoever is reading it. I mean, there's something amazing about picture books in that it's it's art and it's literature and it's performance. It's all those things, but none of them. And especially to me, the writing, it's more like a song, writing a song, I think. There's kind of choruses that there's sort of... Um, the rhythms are more like a song than like a like a prose novel. So, yeah, there's something of all of those things, I think. It's really interesting listening to you say that, because one of the things that um, I often do in a professional capacity, I think it's often easy to overlook the importance of the words in a picture book. And so one of the little exercises of personal interest is to blank out the words and see whether the story can be completely told in the images, which I think yours can. But then I do the other thing, which is uh, to take the words on their own and see how it is that they enhance the story, which I think yours, without a doubt, do. (laughs) It is this wonderful integration of how text words are placed alongside images And just listening to, you know, climb, run, maybe, repetitions, you're going to remember that. The memorability of it, you know, is so important as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, when I'm writing a book or making a book, I do one pass where it's kind of all images and then I do another pass and I I strip out the words and I just look at the words on the page and, and see okay, they say, they say maybe to lead up to this particular moment. And then if I go, maybe, maybe, maybe. And, and then what word or phrase makes it funnier, you know, to, to land on, uh, you know, at the end or whatever. So, so there's, you know, I, like I would do 
one whole load of, of work, say a few weeks of work on doing the images and then look again at, at the text and each informs the other. So, you know, I, I annoy myself so much because I'm changing stuff one way and then changing it the other way, depending that the text and the, the images. And that's why I'm kind of reluctant to um, work with a, another writer because I think I would drive them crazy. I want to talk a little bit about your characters, these uh, cheeky monkeys. And I was putting, again, I'm sorry to compare books, but I, you know, I just find it really interesting to see patterns in uh, children's literature. And I've put in mind a little bit of Martin Waddell and Patrick Benson's classic Owl Babies. The story would not be the same if there was one monkey or two monkeys. So there's a magic somehow in this number three. I wondered whether there were always going to be three monkeys in your story. That's interesting, actually. When I was writing We Have a Plan, there was sort of action unfolding on the page and I wanted to sort of draw the action and, and describe it. And the best way of doing that was to have three people doing this action. And, and it just made sense. And when I did that, I thought, that's a really good technique to have these three characters because they're egging each other on or they're, they're helping each other or, or, or whatever. I'm very inspired by a lot of sort of oral, like preliterate culture. All of these stories, you know, like they're passed just from word of mouth and, and it, it relies on, on the memory. So all of those jokes, you know, Paddy Irishman, Paddy Englishman, Paddy Scotsman, almost all of them, they're all this rule of three and we're programmed to, to sort of this happens then that happens and then oh this happens and, and, and it just makes it it makes it a kind of satisfying story experience yeah really interesting because although I mean Shh has really got four characters but it's essentially three plus one isn't it they were three characters to begin with and then there was going to be the sort of hero character was <laughs> just arrived in at the end and you know my editor was saying you can't just solve the problem with somebody who hasn't been there all along and I was thinking oh, how am I going to fit this in this is because the, the the patterning had all been three and then I thought oh we'll just have them being shushed then they're they're on the page they're there all along but they don't they're not allowed to say anything and and that was how, how that came about so in a sense, a little, I suppose, that other character fulfills a similar role to the mother in Maybe, just not one of the group, if you like, but there to uh, be some kind of con conscience, perhaps. Yeah, th this other thing playing in their mind that, you know, we're not really supposed to be doing this, and then, yeah. George and Little Owl, on the other hand, are very different types of stories. They're solo characters, and they couldn't be anything at but solo characters. I'm a great fan of George. Uh, love the story. I know some adult readers, I don't know if you've come across this as well, who think that the focus on what they consider to be a proxy naughty child is something that they don't like. Is that? Have you heard that before? Um, not really, actually. They're, they're going to, I mean, <laughs> the, the, the book I'm working on now is a lot naughty. I mean, the monkeys are, are, I think, naughtier than George. I mean, they're deliberately, well, George obviously kind of can't help himself. The monkeys are doing it deliberately. Um, 
But uh, I, I was having difficulty coming up with a kind of, a, you know, I, I do the little quotes at the beginning of the stories. And I was thinking, gosh, I don't know what I'm going to put in this one because, you know, it's about risk taking and, and danger. And I don't want to encourage in any way sort of risk taking or danger. I mean, what, what they do is like it's a life threatening thing that, that they do. So and, and I, so I wanted to make the, the, the tigers really quite scary and get, give them a bit of a shock. So the quote I came up with at the end was it's from Aristotle. Uh, for the things we have to learn before we can do, we learn by doing. Mm. Um, it doesn't come down on one side or the other side. It's not encouraging risk taking. It's not saying don't take any risks. It's just saying we always learn the hard way. I mean, you have to learn. It's the only way of learning. It's like a catch-22. And that that is life. I'd like to talk a little bit about your character and characterization and the techniques that you use. I do know that you used uh, cut and torn paper for shh. Um, yes. And it seems to be the same with the monkeys. Is that true? That's yeah. that's true, yes. I just wondered what working in that medium afforded you. And are there things that you can't do with it that you might get frustrated because you can't do it with that technique? Well, actually, the first two books I, I did mostly digitally like with uh, I started out with drawings but but I made those shapes all digitally and then when I was working on we have a plan because there was three and then four characters on every page in fact five characters because the the, the bird was there as well and it was getting so complicated and I was getting myself into a bit of a knot with the with the illustrations and I knew I needed to simplify it somehow and I thought well if I just did it with torn paper I couldn't be too precious with it so for, for example their hands rather than having to draw the fingers with the torn paper all you can do is just do it one piece of paper which is a sort of a square or whatever and that's your hand and it kind of um can sort of cut out the details and, and then the in that way, you focus on the composition and on other things. And uh, it was it was just easier for me to create those pictures. Also, because I was shifting around the, the characters on the page, it was helpful for me to actually physically have them floating uh, and then line up the words and, and, and see how it's going to work. Because I, in some pages, I was sort of weaving it through trees and this sort of thing. It was just too difficult to do with drawings so so that freed me up to work like that. but you chose with your tigers to have drawing on your tigers for the stripes and the whiskers and things. yeah so i don't know whether you tried that with cut paper or whether in, intuitively you knew it had to be drawn i kind of wanted them to be different from the, the rest of it so they just stood out and then when you turn the page you kind of get a bit of a shock because they stand out that, you know, these sort of yellow and, and black stripes, sort of this danger feeling. And if I had done them with sort of thin strips of, of paper, they'd sort of tend to melt into the background. And this just gave them a kind of a punch. Talking about some detail here, I've been looking at your eyes, not your eyes, but the eyes of your character. <laughs> They tend to be white circles with dark circles in the middle. And yet so much of the character is expressed through the eyes. I mean, it's, it's quite amazing, really. 
the I whites are so important to, to us. And I'm, I'm, I always have the only piece of white on any of my pictures in any of my books is the eyes, eye whites, because it, it, it just makes them stand out. So, you know, you're kind of looking at the, the whole of the rest of the page is all sort of just colored, whatever. And then you're, you're focused on, on these eye whites. Um, and that, that, that's really, I mean, drawing for years and trying to make funny, funny pictures and stuff like that everything it's all about the eyes but I, I i read recently about this cooperative eye hypothesis it's basically we are very different from chimpanzees and, and our closest cousins in that we have the whites of our eyes are very clear the chimpanzees you can't see that the whites of their eyes and these japanese scientists made these tests very very young babies had just been born uh chimpanzee babies and humans and the babies followed where humans were looking, but the chimpanzees always followed where the chimpanzees' mum head was looking, not where their eyes were looking. Wow. And so they have this sort of hypothesis that this was sort of early communication in the lead up to language. And we began to communicate more with our eyes it's really amazing. Uh, absolutely fascinating. I'm glad I asked that question because I had no idea about it. <laughs> look at it. I think it's called the cooperative eye hypothesis. I'm going to have a look at that. Definitely. Um, I've withheld talking about colour because I'm sure lots of people do. And it is one thing that's instantly recognisable about your books is your colour choice. Even though they're so different, I think obviously there's a lot of flats. It's very saturated colour, often hot colour, interesting combinations that provide an instant mood or tone for your story. My first question really, though, is whether you see the colours that you need for your stories in your mind's eye or whether you have to physically place them together and manipulate them to know what you want to use, or whether you apply a scientific colour theory to your choices. What, what is it like? <laughs> well, the funny thing is, when I'm making all of my artwork, I'm always doing it in black and white. When I'm tearing paper, it's just black, white and grey. And I just want to get, get a kind of dramatic composition. And then once I've got that, I'll be thinking when I make a book, what, what's the best use of colour? Like, how, how could I kind of use colour to try and kind of just enhance the story? So in A Bit Lost, the main character is this just very black and white character yeah. on a colourful background. Mm. And the black and white ca character is on this uh, like stage set. And the stage is all black, black and white. So it's almost like the main character and the ground. It's, it's all a silhouette and the, the background is all colourful. Uh, and then we have a plan. It's kind of almost the opposite of that, where kind of the main character is very colourful and the rest of it is all silhouette. So it's the same sort of trick, but just flipped around. But it just makes your eye come to the main character, the main focus. So with maybe I wanted the monkeys are thinking about mangoes and mangoes are, are yellow. And then the, the, the tigers are also yellow. So I thought they're going through this jungle and some yellow is, is going to pop out at them. And so I just sort of worked backwards from there. So I thought what would look good with these yellow and orange 
colors and I thought red, a red forest. And then the monkeys show up quite well if they're sort of dark blue, purple on this red and, and they've got their big white eyes. You want the, the reader to immediately see, they're thinking about this, you know, the mangoes. And then when they see them, it has to be something amazing, you know, and you're drawn to it. What, what is this? So even if you don't know what a mango is, you've never seen a mango before, you're a young child or, or, or whatever. It is this other thing that they, they want and they want to, and that communicates without any background knowledge. Yeah, really interesting because um, you're talking about how shape appears on flat colour and it really does allow those shapes to pop out so that it, it's much more obvious, isn't it, when it's on this very flat background. You can make a picture any colour and you'll read it just as the picture. You're not really looking at the colour because I think the way our visual system works, you know, it could be, could be a really bright day, it could be a grey day, whatever. It, you know, like the Monet paintings, the, the Notre Dame, it, it's all different colours, but you still recognise it as the Notre Dame Cathedral. So I think in our sort of visual system, we just recognise shapes, really. We, we're not really paying that much attention to colour. So that, then that frees us from using realistic colour and we can use colour just to highlight things rather than going, oh, it's a tree. I'll have to do the, the leaves green and, and the, the bark brown or, or whatever. And we read it as a tree no matter what colour it is. Uh, we read it as a tree as a black and white photograph. Absolutely. No and stuff. even very stylized as well. You know, it doesn't have need detail to read yes yeah yeah no it's 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 amazing what we're able to pick up on so to me i mean i'm making very stylized simplified it's almost like it's a graphic designer making a kind of picture book and how can i make it simpler and simpler and what things can i get away with and because once you can get away with something in one direction that gives you creative freedom in, in the other direction if you want to make it look realistic, if you want to do all the trees in their usual colours, then you're going to lose your main character in the picture because it's not going to jump out off the page because, you know, it's a brown owl on a brown tree. Where is the owl? <laughs> <laughs> Where is our main character? Oh, no. I mean, there's, that's no good. So you're playing with these different things and, and seeing what you can get away with. Just one thing, more thing about colour before we leave it so completely. I know that you've travelled. I know that you've worked overseas. Do you think you are influenced by these places that you've travelled to? Oh, 100%. I absolutely love folk art, I think, is just amazing. I mean, I have this theory that sort of pre-literate art has just something magical about it. And because a lot of the things that I'm drawn to, I'm drawn to children's art. And I'm inspired by folk art, you know, from really sort of tribal, sort of preliterate uh, cultures. Because I think that it's just this sort of very immediate way of, of capturing what's going on and communicating that. I think that, like we were saying before, if you take something out away, then, then it frees you up in a, in a different way. If they're preliterate, they might be more literate in in visual communication, you know, things like, you know, maps and prints, you know, this is their culture there. It's because it's a visual culture, much more so than, than a literate culture. And mm. it, 
always there's something that makes me go, wow, I've never thought to put that and that together. How did they think of that? That's brilliant. You've so. just led me down a slightly different path here. Uh, it's that often language and thought are talked about as though they are so tightly connected. And I actually think that sometimes we forget that the process of making art is a thought that you think through making art too. Visual literacy. I think it's so important. There's a really interesting, you know, with Marshall McLuhan, mm. uh, one of his students, Walter Ong, he talks a lot about pre-literate uh, societies and this sort of thing and, and how different they are from literate. And they have this way when we can write something, we put it down on paper and then we can visualize it. And then it's like we're kind of communicating to ourselves. It's a way of sort of bouncing an idea back and forth. So, for example, pre-literate people can't really put things into categories or do bullet points or make a shopping list. They have to do everything in their own head and it, it doesn't allow this bouncing back and forth. But as an artist, I am continuously bouncing things back and forth in my sketchbook because I, I would think, oh, I have a great idea. You know, I, I will set up this character like this and then this will happen. And then when I sketch it out, I go, oh, that's not going to work because I can't fit that into the composition. And, and then I'm thinking about how would I make that work? And, and you're, you're, you're bouncing things off. And, and, and that's how, I mean, I, I just did, did renovation here and um, you're working out, oh, how am I going to fit this cupboard into that thing? And you have to draw it out. You can't do it without drawing. And, and it, drawing is thinking. We've come a long way from three cheeky little monkeys <laughs> up a mango, mango tree <laughs> in the last half an hour or so. But it has been such a pleasure uh, catching up with you, Chris, and talking to you. Uh, thanks so much for joining me in the uh, reading corner today. Thank you so much. Great to see you. And uh, I hope I can come again soon. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.